two things strike me as I'm sitting there praying. Uh, Dan's leading us in prayer. Um, one is, uh, boy, the, there's a lot of holes here as I look in our church family. Um, maybe that will spur you to share the gospel with your neighbor. Think about that now. Um, that's the mission of the church, right? Do you want a growth strategy for the church? Share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who don't know him, right? There's some cards over on the um, Welcome Center here that have the start times of our service in Sunday school. It'd be a perfect time to say, hey, come to Easter. At 9.30, there's a breakfast, and at 10.30, we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? So do your part, friends. Um, make sure you're active on the mission, right? The second thing, um, <clears throat> as I'm hearing a baby cry, um, I'm, uh, I'm grateful uh, for the Lord uh, giving us little ones. Um, be part of people's families. Uh, you, you know, you see a, a mom or dad struggling with a little one, go over and see if you can help in some way, right? Um, let's be the family of God together. Just a couple thoughts I had. I think that's um, uh, things that would honor the Lord. Uh, we continue in our sermon series in the book of 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> We're in chapter 3 this morning, so open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll be in verses 10 through 17. So 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 17. <clears throat> I've entitled this sermon, Building God's House, and you'll see quickly why I called it that. <clears throat> Before we get to the text... It was about 10 years ago, right now, uh, that the deacons at this church at that time asked me if I would consider being Union Lake's interim pastor. So about a decade, Jamie, can you believe it? A decade ago, right? Um, and uh, the church, uh, if, you're, if you were here at that time, you know, the church had been without a senior pastor for, you know, the better part of a year at that point. I remember having a conversation about this topic of coming as the interim pastor. I remember having a conversation with one of the men as we discussed the possibility of me serving in this more formal way. I had been filling the pulpit for a couple of months uh, up to this point. And I remember he asked me what I was going to do about the young people that were leaving the church. How are you going to address that? We've got this, this youth group and you know, and, and, and it's this thriving youth group, and, and a lot of the young people, once they got out of uh, high school, uh, they left the church, and how was I going to deal with that? Well, that's a tough question, right? I remember. I remember sitting in, in a room. I, I, I can, like, picture the whole conversation in my mind, and I remember the, um, the sort of urgency in that man's voice when he asked me that. And of course, there's a number of ways um, that you might answer that question. I mean, how do you answer a question like, how are you going to fix the church? That's a big question, right? It's an important question, a weighty question. How are you going to stabilize this place? Maybe to say it another way, how are you going to prepare it for success and growth? How would you answer such questions? Well, by God's grace, the way I answered it was not particularly clever. It certainly wasn't novel. It was simply this. 
I remember saying, I'm going to work really hard to clarify the gospel in this church. That's going to be my chief objective. I was going to strive to preach and teach in a way that drove people to find their identity and hope in Christ. I was going to disciple the church the best I knew how in the good news of his death and resurrection. Now, I haven't done that perfectly, to be sure. I'm not up here trying to beat my chest and say, see what I've done. That's not the point. But with the Spirit's help and the help of faithful brothers and sisters here, I believe we can now say that Union Lake is firmly built upon the gospel. And our text today tells us that 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 is the only way God's church is ever built according to his design. Okay, So keep that in mind, this idea of building a church strong and, 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 and poising it for success. I want you to be thinking in those ways um, as we look at this passage because it's, it's very much about that. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verses 10 through 17. Prepare your hearts, friends. This is God's word. He speaks to us now. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If, anyone, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire." Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. This is God's Word. The Apostle speaks plainly to the troubled church at Corinth here. I mean, you and I know the church was troubled. I mean, this letter is full of addressing problems, right? But he speaks really plainly to the church here at the front end of the letter. And his message is clear. God's house is to be built according to his design. That's the theme of this passage. God's house, his church, his people, God's church is to be built according to his design. Now, this metaphor for the church being a structure of some kind, like a, an edifice, it's, 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 it's used uh, many times in the Scriptures. I did a little search and was kind of reading just, just widely through some different New Testament books, and, and uh, I was reminded in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 how Paul wrote of uh, how Christians should behave in the household of God. Right, that picture of the of the of the people of God in a locality being built up into a house. Peter said, "When sinners turn to Christ, they are being built up into a spiritual house." We read that in First Peter chapter two and verses four through five. 
And just before our text, let your eyes fall back on the page. I started reading verse 10, but look back at verse 9. Do you see it there in the second half of that verse? You are God's field, God's what? Building. Right? So this is a very common metaphor of God speaking about his people being built up. Right? You even While it doesn't say house in Ephesians 4, you very much have that idea of the church of God being built up into love. Right? Well, this idea about God's people being built into a house, a building of some kind, right? It speaks of God having a blueprint, if you will. Much like, a, much like a builder would have a blueprint of a commercial building or a, or a residential home that he was about to erect. But God's blueprint is for his people to be built into various local communities where his people find their identity and hope in Christ. And because of this, they grow and mature in their love for him and for each other. That's God's blueprint. That's God's design for the church that a church would be built together in love based on the foundation of Jesus Christ and mature in Him and so serve Him well and each other well and even reach out into the community with that very hope. But that doesn't happen automatically, you see. I mean, that's, that's great to say, right? That God has a plan for the church. I mean, people sell books that way. You know, God's got a plan for your life. Read this book, Right? But it doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen by chance, surely. It only happens if the church, God's house, is built in a very specific way, a way approved by him. For it to truly be God's house, then, it must be built according to his design. While there's much freedom in the church, I mean, one local church might look quite a bit different than one across town. There's lots of permissible ways that we can be different, right? We can have sermons that are of different lengths. We can, we can sing different styles of music. We can have different kinds of instruments being played up here. We can have different kinds of programs that our church offers that that church doesn't, and vice versa, right? There can be lots of different ways, certainly, that our building looks like and our grounds look, at, look like and all those sorts of things. There's much freedom in how God's people do church, But the way we build up our people to be mature, to be equipped, to be engaged, to be flourishing disciples, must be according to God's design. And this is what this passage is all about. If we veer from God's design in essential things, then we no longer are building God's house. We're doing something else. We're building something that God didn't didn't plan, comes out of our own plans, and that can have very tragic results. And so we're reminded in this passage of this eternal truth, I've said it a couple times now, I want it to stick. God's house is to be built according to his design. We see this in two ways in our passages. We sort of take our passage and break it into two pieces and think about the building of a, of a building or a house. I want you to first look at its foundation, for that's where Paul starts. And then we move to the inspection of the builder's work. 
So that's the two phases that we look at here. So let's begin by, by, by considering the foundation of the church. God's house is to be built according to His design, and that starts with its foundation. And we see that in verses 10 and 11. Look at verse, I'm going to read just the beginning of 10 and 11 I'm with an ellipsis. So I'm just giving you the meat of, the, of, of that uh, 10 and 11 for a minute. He says, I laid a foundation, and then later he says, which is Jesus Christ. I laid a foundation, which is Jesus Christ. This is, the, this is perhaps the uh, easiest, simplest statement one could make from this pulpit. But the proper foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. Why? Why is the right foundation for a church the Lord Jesus Christ? Because it is first and foremost God's church. And so you would expect that God's church that is being built up to glorify His Son would be founded on the person and work of Jesus Christ. I mean, even as we look back again at that verse 9, it not only says the word building, but it says God's building. Right? But what does it mean to have Jesus Christ as a church's foundation? And that's all well and good. What church wouldn't say that, right? I mean, is there a church in America today where a man's standing up and saying, our foundation here in this church is not Jesus, but this other thing? Nobody's saying that, right? Not a real church. So what does it mean to have Jesus Christ as a church's foundation? Well, think back to Peter's great declaration, right? You, you remember what he said back in Matthew 16, 16, in, in answering who Peter thought Jesus was. You remember? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in response to that, in response to that great proclamation, the Lord said He would build His church upon that rock, upon the foundation of that truth and men's faith in it. So to have a foundation of Jesus Christ means a church must believe something about Him. They must believe that He is the divine Son of God, the, the long-promised Messiah, the Savior King sent into the world to rescue sinners. But it also means to believe in what He has done to make that salvation possible. And so to have a foundation of Jesus Christ means to also believe in the bedrock truths of the gospel itself. To believe that Christ died to pay the penalty for man's sin. To believe that he suffered as a substitute to satisfy God's justice, to, to bring about forgiveness and restore fallen men to their merciful and holy God. To have a foundation of Jesus Christ means to believe that He literally died and was buried and rose again and ascended to heaven's throne and He's coming again to gather up the redeemed so that they might have life eternal in the presence and the fullness of joy of, of, of their Savior. So to have a foundation of Jesus Christ is to, is to believe in who He is and what He has done and what he will yet do. And so it's no surprise that when Paul was establishing the church at Corinth, he laid this as the foundation. 
This is what Paul meant when he wrote in chapter 2 and verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Or if you prefer the latter chapters of the book, Paul would say it this way in in chapter 15 and verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures of first importance. I decided to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. The matter of first importance that I put forward to you is that Christ died and rose again. God's house is to be built according to His design, and it starts with the proper foundation. Thus, when Paul was sent by God to plant a church in Corinth like a skilled master builder, verse 10 says, he laid the person and work of Christ as its foundation. In other words, he evangelized and discipled men in the faith which is all about God's plan to reconcile the world to himself through his Son. Paul evangelized that way. Of course, nobody comes into the faith but through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But friends, that's how the church matures also. All of of the parts of that gospel, all of the different facets of who Jesus is, all of the different dimensions and implications of his incarnation coming in, in humility in him laying down his life for his friends, and all that means for us. And what God's wrath being satisfied, what the implications of that are for us. And the fact that he's coming again, these are the things that the church needs to be discipled in. Yes, evangelized with, right, the Gospels so that people come to the faith, but also that they might mature in the faith through these very things. What else might someone try to build a church upon you, you might ask? Well, lots of things. I mean, the, the landscape of the American church alone is tragic in what people try to build the church upon. The personality of the pastor, a particular children's program, conservative politics, simply just having fun with your friends. Now, it's not that any of those particular things are are necessarily bad, but they're not the proper foundation upon which to build a church. And that's where things go wrong when the foundation isn't laid rightly upon him. The church must stand on Christ in their discipleship, in their training and leading people to enjoy the fullness of what it means to be united to Him. To try and build a church on anything else is simply folly, and in the end will be opposing God's plans for His church. Anyone who veers from His blueprints for the church, from what He desires for His people, will surely fail. And so Paul issues a very grave warning You see it there in the second half of 10 into 11? Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The idea is that once a solid, strong foundation is laid for a building, it is possible that other builders would continue the work 
But they, might, but they need to be careful that they don't use faulty materials. Even when the foundation is firm, right? They can still choose uh, material, building materials that will make the structure unstable. And therein lies the warning. Worse still is the picture of someone trying to tear up that foundation and, and replace it with something far inferior. But sadly, this happens when churches begin well, but then allow a new philosophy to come into the church that leads people away from the Savior upon which that church was founded. It happens when the members begin to adopt worldly views on how to grow a church and import sort of business practices into our plan for reaching the world and, and growing the church. It can happen when the church decides to exchange expository preaching with shallow talks geared more towards entertainment than discipleship. It happens when the people call a man to lead them because he's young and attractive and hip and funny rather than humble and faithful and wise in the things of the Scriptures. When this happens, the foundation is forgotten. It's as if weeds are growing up in the cracks because building God's house according to His design is seen as somehow outdated and ineffective. But if a pastor wants to line up his plans with the Lord's plans, it starts with respecting the foundation of the gospel and building a community of faith by building with like materials. If a church is to be a true church, if a church is to be planted or revitalized or simply to continue forward in a way that, that it will weather the storms ahead, it will have to be built upon the right foundation, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. You know, by God's grace, this church adopted elders to lead the church several years ago in keeping with the Bible's teaching, I might add. And having elders in place is a huge protection against the church radically changing direction from one senior pastor to the next, because the idea is to have an enduring council of elders that will continue to push it forward in the same way. But the elders cannot simply install a new pastor, friends. The church does that. You, you have to call the next man that will, that will follow me, for example. And when you do, be careful to affirm a man that will build upon the foundation of Christ by preaching through the books of the Bible, explaining how passages anticipate Christ's coming, or explain the riches of being found in Him, or look forward to His glorious return. It's got to be all about Him. You know, most most pastors don't preach that way. The, the, the state of the American pulpit is, is tragic. And so you need to be prepared for that day when you'll have to evaluate the next guy. Or you might move and have to find a church and evaluate you know, uh, the, the preaching in different pulpits, or help a friend or a, a child find a church, or, you know, there, there's a whole number of ways in which you might be put in that situation. So you've got to be ready. You've got to be prepared. 
By God's grace, and that's not a throwaway phrase, by God's grace, I purpose to preach that way, to counsel you that way. The, the, the elders all do. May it prepare you for the days ahead when you'll need to do these kinds of evaluations. Paul started with the foundation, a good place to start when talking about constructing a building, right? That building, God's house, his church, is to be built according to his design. Its foundation being set upon the rock, which is Christ. But the passage, the, 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 the great weight of the passage, verses 12 through 17, deals with this next phase of the building of God's church. In fact, it is the inspection that's coming. God inspecting the work that others will do, building upon the foundation. That's found in verses 12 through 17. Look at verse 13, just to be reminded. Each one's work will become manifest or clear. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. There's a day coming. It's at the Lord's return. On that day, the day of judgment, when all things will be made plain, that will be the day of inspection of those who led God's church, the kind of ministries they, 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 they led, the kind of work that they did, the kind of pouring into people that they did. All of that will be evaluated. As I said, just because a church is planted with the right foundation doesn't mean the men who come later will lead wisely. Pastors and teachers need to heed Paul's warning in verse 10 about being careful how they lead, how they preach, how they teach, how they disciple, for the Lord himself will judge their work. Again, the reason God will judge primarily is because it's his church. You're going to stand up and lead his people in the building that he's building? the one that he's laid the foundation through the apostles on the Lord Jesus Christ, you better believe he's going to hold men to an account. Just as the temple in Jerusalem was holy. And think about the reverence of that place that the Jews had for the temple. Just as the temple was seen as this holy place and, and the place where God's people could come and worship Him in that locale. The church is where the Spirit of the Lord now resides. Verses 16 and 17 say as much. It's not a place anymore. It's bigger than that. It's, it's, it's a people both individually, the Spirit lives within everyone who follows Christ, but corporately, the body meets together for worship and prayer and fellowship. The Spirit is there too in a very intimate and special way. Leaders of God's church then can influence its members by equipping them and encouraging them in that holy place which is 
both in themselves and as they gather together with others in the church. Leaders of God's church can influence them by, by building them up and by encouraging them to know and serve Christ more faithfully. But they can also frustrate God's people by failing to disciple them by failing to, to, to lead them into growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. They can distract the church with other things. Prophecy conferences and timetables and those sorts of things, for example. And so God holds teachers and spiritual leaders to the highest of standards. I mean, recall what James said, right? In James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. D.A. Carson gets right down to it with, with why God will inspect the work of church leaders. He simply writes, God cares about His church, and so He holds its leaders accountable. And that's true. It's true, of course it's true, that God cares about the church. He sent his son into the world to, to die, to spill his blood, to purchase it. And the son is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep, demonstrating that care. His selfless, eternally valuable, life-giving kind of leadership was in stark contrast to, the, the, to, to, the Israel, to Israel's faithless, self-consumed leaders. You read about that in places like Ezekiel and even in the Gospels where he confronts the leaders of that day. Christ's compassion and care was seen in his judgment that Israel had no one to lead them. That they were being harassed by their leaders. No one to lead them to be reconciled with the Father. Again and again we read of God's care for his church. And God calls men to be qualified to lead His people, another sign of His care for us. He calls men to lead His people that are able to build the church up in sound doctrine and oppose those who contradict it. That's, that's found in Titus chapter 1. He calls men, because He cares about the church, to preach the Word in season and out of season, to always be prepared. That's in 1 Timothy, of course. And he calls men out of his care to exercise oversight in the church and to be examples for her. See that in 1 Peter chapter 5. Again and again, throughout the record of the New Testament, we see the care of God for His church. And so He requires it to be built according to His design. And he will hold the leaders to an account on whether or not they followed that design. Just as a builder has to submit his work to a city inspector for approval, the ministry of pastors and teachers of God's church will be inspected by God himself. Being a pastor, I can tell you that this serves as a very strong motivator for me to lead well. All Christian leaders would would do well to fear the Lord in this way. To fear Him. The, to think about that day where we will give an account. 
while leaders may gain a large following if they build his church in a crooked, unhealthy way, they will be accountable to him. Paul, in fact, lays out three different kinds of inspections that will happen when he returns, when Christ returns. First, for those who humbly and faithfully lead the flock, who continue to teach what accords with sound doctrine, who continue to build not their own reputations, but Christ's reputations, reputation in the hearts and minds of, of their people. Those who point people to the continual grace in Jesus that empowers holy living and, and, and demonstrate that kind of living themselves. For those men, the pure fire of God's judgment will, will reveal that they have done well with their building. They will be found to have been building with the sort of things that, that, that make our, our eyes brighten. Verse 12, they're gold, silver, and precious stones, the most valuable of things. And for such loyalty to Christ and the love for his people, God will richly reward these kinds of builders of the church. And that's a very strong motivator as well. There's nothing untoward to looking forward to the reward. And so we see it as a, as a motivator here for leaders of the church, for those who would build the church to do it, do it well, to build in accordance with the foundation, Jesus Christ. But there's going to be another kind of inspection, a second one that will, that will surely happen. For those leaders who, while not abandoning the gospel foundation entirely, those who foolishly add to it worldly doctrines and philosophies, their work will be shown to be worthless in light of eternity. For it will not survive the Lord's judgment in that day. It will be like wood, hay, and straw that cannot survive a house fire. Their ministry, likewise, will not survive the fire of God's holy scrutiny. Well, what are we talking about? What, what sort of What's, what sort of worthless leadership are we talking about? We're talking about Christian leaders now. We're not talking about heretics and false teachers, not yet. Here we're talking about Christian men, Christian leaders, who haven't abandoned the good news of Jesus Christ, but put it on a shelf and try to grow the church in other ways. What are some of the ways we see that in churches? Well, lots of churches, while believing the gospel, allow people to join who show no fruits of the gospel in their lives. It's like an easy believism kind of an approach. Raise your hand for Jesus and you're in. And this is, this is so unwise. It, it, it's not that the elders, for example, or even the church family are like these perfect judges of someone's salvation. That's not the point. But people's lives need to be examined so to see that they're in keeping with what they proclaim. Otherwise, the church lets unbelievers into the church and they even make their way into positions of influence to, great damage, to the great damage of God's people. Lots of pastors teach a worldly view of humanity where people are seen as basically good. We see this when, 
when uh, worldly uh, psychology comes into the church, for example, in counseling. And this is tragic. It neuters the gospel of its power to combat sin. It tries to shift the, the, the focus on, on applying the, the atonement to man's sin to something else, to blaming it on, on circumstances and other people's situations. Lots of pastors are people pleasers care a lot about what the people think of them, and that sort of drives their decisions. And so they regularly fail to confront and discipline sin in the church for fear of what people will think. For such costly leadership consistently brings harsh criticism inside the church, friends. This failure to build on the foundation of Christ does great damage to the Lord's reputation when sin is allowed to run rampant inside the, 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 the people of God. And what's more, it does great damage to those people who are in sin by not confronting them and great damage to the rest of the people. Lots of leaders hold out a perverted view of the Christian life where we should expect an easy life if we follow Jesus or, or that we will be taken out of this world before we face any real tribulation thereby rendering the church unprepared for the trials that God sends them for their good. Failures to teach and counsel in these kind of ways, failures to lead the people with gospel truth and gospel clarity and gospel power is like building with wood, hay, and straw and expecting it to withstand a great fire. Failing to show the people of God how to draw supernatural help to live for Him in light of the cross is like building this church out of newspaper and cardboard. Whatever is being offered in place of Christ crucified is material not fit for the temple that is God's people. And it will be exposed as such, as sure as night follows day. Look at verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. You can see here, this is a Christian leader that's being talked of. For he himself will be saved. We sang that God's wrath is satisfied for the Christian, right? So, so no matter how tragic of a leader, if he's a Christian, he himself will be saved in the end. But nevertheless... The worthlessness of his ministry will go up in smoke. Christian leaders who shirk their responsibilities in these kinds of ways will, will not be punished. Christ paid for all of their failures. They will, however, suffer loss, the text says. That loss is the sense of receiving no reward for their works. This, because there is definitely a sliding scale when it comes to rewards. For the faithful, they will be honored. They will be commended. But for, the, for, for those that, that shirk their responsibility, that spent their life on fruitless things, there will be this glaring emptiness of reward. And that's what's being spoken of here. Think of the great waste of a pastor squandering the opportunity to receive a word of thanks from his king. Instead, receiving no commendation for perhaps years or even decades of valueless work in his church. 
What a motivator that is to lead well. Well, the third kind of inspection is dealing with false teachers. False teachers that sneak into the church. There's warning after warning after warning in the New Testament of this, friends. And I've seen this with my very own eyes. Men who appear to be qualified and faithful, who do not build on the foundation of Christ, but try to dismantle the church by laying a new foundation, one of loyalty to themselves rather than to the Savior, undercutting those who came before them and discipled the church in the doctrines of the faith. Their wicked, destructive works will, be also, will also not escape God's judgment. Look at verse 17. It's as simple as it is sober. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. All who take up the role of leaders in the church, their work, whether it's precious or worthless or downright evil, their work will be seen to be what it truly is in the end. Paul assured Timothy of this very thing. 1 Timothy 5:24 listen The sins of some men are conspicuous going before them to judgment so also good works are conspicuous and even those that are not cannot remain hidden I mean that's a that's an encouraging thought isn't it that nothing escapes God's glance He knows everything perfectly he knows what happened last night. He knows what's going to happen this afternoon. He knows what happened a thousand years ago and a thousand years from now. He knows it all perfectly as if it's in the present right now and he's experiencing it. God's house is to be built according to his design. It's to be built on the foundation of Christ. And those who lead the church, who build on that foundation, will, will have their work inspected by the Lord Himself. <laughs> well, we could say a lot about this. I have three applications for you to consider. First, when your pastors make mistakes, and I know personally that that happens a lot, when your pastors make mistakes, be gracious. Don't try to embarrass them in front of others. Certainly don't condemn them to other people. And don't run them down even in their own mind. You know why? Because it will be of no advantage to you. Hebrews 13 tells us that. The work of the pastors is too important for you to do such things. And besides, friends, there is someone that they will be accountable to. Rest assured. Rest assured. Now, that doesn't mean ignore the sins of your pastors or fail to give them good counsel or, 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 or not come to them and try to suggest different and better ways to do things. I'm not saying that. By all means, come. But remember, they're accountable to God who called them to serve in the ways in which they're serving. And that's of great comfort. Second, for the leaders in this church, I mean, that's what the passage is primarily pointed towards. This is applicable to everybody. 
but we need to be careful how and why we're doing what we're doing in church. Whether it's preaching, whether it's pushing snow, whether it's teaching children Sunday school, whether it's um, coming to prayer meeting, whatever it is you're doing, you need to be careful. Examine your hearts. Why are you doing this? And are you doing it in the right way? Is it consistent with this kind of right building up of God's church? Are you drawing power and inspiration and delight from what Christ has done and is doing? Or is this some kind of way to make you yourself look better than other people? Or do you have a, yet another motive? Be careful and examine these things. Finally, take a moment to examine whether you're living as God's temple, which is holy, the passage says. Or whether you're harboring uh, sin, which is not worthy of the Spirit who lives within you, or Christ that died for those sins. Take a few moments of quiet reflection and prayer as we move to the table. And I'd ask the men to come forward uh, at this, or, or to prepare to pass the elements out at this time.